listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Amen. Uh, three, three quick thoughts. Uh, one is we just read a lot of verses. Uh, two, uh, can we read those verses in September? Right? You know, um, like how often do we actually look at um, the foretelling of Jesus's birth in September, apart from the month of December? And then finally, um, and and this is probably a generalization, so I'll just speak for myself at first. I, I'm cynical. I think that we're just a cynical people, even about spiritual things, right? Take, for instance, faith healers like Benny Hinn and Todd White, you might be familiar with those names. We rightly call them out for their false doctrine and their fake healings. But so often what we do is we swing the pendulum so far the other way that when we find our own selves praying to God for healing for other individuals or even for ourselves, we feel uncomfortable. Anybody else feel like that? We just feel uncomfortable at times assuming that God won't heal someone who is sick or injured. Or how about the infamous Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. We've heard that along with nothing is impossible with God out of context so many times that when those verses are actually applicable in our lives, we just shrug them off. We've heard the resurrection story of Jesus Christ with such frequency that in many ways it's just completely lost its wonder in our lives. And so this morning, it's not lost on me that when we get to probably one of the most read stories in all of the Bible this week and next, that the mystery and impossibility has all but faded for us. So here's what I want to do as we begin Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. I want to just ask you for a moment if you would just step back in the middle of summer, in September, as you hear about the coming birth of Jesus Christ and his cousin John. Would you try, by the Spirit's help, to hear it and receive it as though it might be your first time hearing it, that you're coming into this very text with fresh ears and fresh eyes, ready to learn what God has for us, ready to receive it as Pastor Jeff just prayed, and ready to submit to it where God would have us this morning by the Holy Spirit's help. Now, Luke begins here, chapter 1, verse 5, where no other gospel writers do, by going much further back to the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. So something, something is happening here with the birth of John, something spectacular. Because as many of us know already, God has been completely silent for how long? 400 years. 400 years. 
hundred silent years, God has uttered nothing. God has sent no prophet. Nothing has been spoken by the Almighty God in over 400 years. And all of a sudden, after all that time, all that waiting, all of the second guessing, I imagine, There's this new prophet coming on the scene, and this isn't made up. It's happening in physical time and space, as verse 5 says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So Luke is doing something for us by writing that detail in that this is not a fictional story, as we heard last week, that he is giving us an orderly account that actually happened about the gospel of Jesus. And this is something that we should know. After 400 years of silence, it is now being broken. Y'all, I think, I think almost daily in some form or fashion that the Lord has forgotten me. Almost every single day. And I have his revealed word in I don't know how many copies sitting on shelves all over my house. And I think sometimes the Lord has certainly forgotten me. And so I can only imagine the toll that that had taken after 400 years of silence, not hearing anything from God, not having any prophet say anything from him. And then all of a sudden there comes this priest named Zechariah in verse 5 who had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, whose name was Elizabeth. Now, for me, in Bible study, it's, it's the little details that really get you amped up. And so, uh, after 400 years of silence, there is this man who's on the scene, a priest named Zechariah. And would you have it that in the providence of God, his name means God has remembered again. After all those years, here's a man saying, God has remembered again. God has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten his promises. He has remembered again. He never has forgotten. He never forgets, and he never will. Now, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are people who love God. They are like it was said of Noah, Righteous. Now, it doesn't mean that they were sinless people, but they absolutely were faithful followers of God. Problem is, it doesn't look like their line is going to go anywhere. Because after all of this time, Elizabeth is still barren. And in this time, folks didn't really understand exactly all that could be about a woman being barren except for this. Here's what they knew. If a woman couldn't have a child, then that must mean that there's some besetting sin that is going on. So they see that there is this individual who appears to be righteous, and yet Elizabeth has never been able to conceive a child, so something must be wrong. Verses 8 and 9 are important here, because as Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty in the temple, he was chosen by a lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, Since we are mostly unfamiliar with how that process works, I want to break it down for just a moment. Israel at that time had 18,000 priests, and they were divided into 24 divisions. Now, 14 whole priests 
from those 18,000 were given the opportunity and privilege and responsibility each year to offer incense on the altar. And those 14 out of 18,000 could only do it once in their lifetime. Most of the priests would never, ever have an opportunity to do this. And it was determined by God himself through the casting of lots. So I, I want you to hear how providential it is that this man, whose name means God has remembered again, gets to, by the casting of lots in the providence of God, go into the temple on this very day and pray and offer incense on behalf of the people. And so he goes into the temple and he begins to offer incense while the rest of the congregation of Israel stands outside and they're just waiting for the smoke to come up through the temple. And when the smoke comes out of the temple, what they know to do is to fall on their faces and just pray because that means that they're being interceded for by that man in there who is offering incense on their behalf. But this particular day, something happens because the priest normally walks right out of the temple after this happens and the whole congregation rejoices knowing that something has just taken place. But this day, Zechariah doesn't immediately come out of the temple because the text says that something, an angel, comes and appears before him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when he sees him in verses 11 and 12, the text says that fear falls upon him. The angel speaks, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And he will be set apart for God's purposes, and he's going to get people ready for the coming Lord. Now, here's the deal. Zechariah, still unconvinced, wants to know how he can be sure. His wife is old. How in the world are we going to have a child? And that's why I say at the beginning this morning, we're just cynical. Perhaps Zechariah is much like us, a bit cynical too. Isn't it ironic that Zechariah could be witnessing a miracle, standing in the temple of the Lord, experiencing something of a heavenly being standing beside of him, and in that moment, he knows that he could actually be struck dead, and the thing that finds him in that moment, the thing that he begins to question is, how is this going to happen? I don't exactly see how the Lord is going to come through in this way. The angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah comes out from the temple, and he can't speak, and that clues the congregation of Israel in that something has just happened to Zechariah. Something they don't quite know, but something has happened in their midst. Well, sure enough, Elizabeth conceives a child, and she keeps herself hidden for five months, the text says. Before we move on, though, I want you to think about how incredible this is for a moment. 
Because I think for most of us in the family of God, we get praying for something for a long period of time. Perhaps we don't spend time every single day or every week praying about this thing, but over a long period of time in our life, most of us would say we have been praying for particular things. Whether it is a, a son or daughter to come to faith, whether it is a, a loved one who we just desire by God's grace would break free from addiction, whether it is that we have been praying for dec a decade that a church in the city of McDonough would be planted, whatever it is, I think most of us in this family could say we have been praying for things for a very long time. Now, you could imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for a child many times. God, would you just break the cycle? Would you just open Elizabeth's womb? Would you just allow us, by your grace and mercy, to conceive a child? And I imagine that as Elizabeth's young age faded, that prayer request became less frequent than it once was. And it shifted over time in their life. And so this day, as Zechariah goes into the temple to offer intercessory prayer, he's now not doing it before the Lord on his own behalf, asking for a child that day. But now he has this responsibility for the congregation of Israel, and he is pleading on their behalf, God, would you send a rescuer? Would you help us? Would you break the silence? Would you come through on your promises? Would you fulfill your word? God is going to rescue you just as you've prayed. That's what the angel of the Lord says. Your prayer has been heard. And today, as you've gone in and you've offered this prayer on behalf of the congregation of Israel, he's going to come and he's going to send a rescuer and he's going to do that by giving you a son, Zechariah. It's incredible that God is working out his worldwide redemptive plan through the prayers, those long time, heart aching prayers of an old barren couple, the kindness of God on display. But this isn't the only impossible story in Luke chapter 1. We have another beginning in verse 26 with the birth of Jesus being foretold. And as Jesus' birth is also foretold, we can't help but to see the similarities. You see, there is the arrival of the angel Gabriel. There is the impossible pregnancy. Both women respond in fear, and there is a promise about the child who will be. But let's make no mistake about it. While there are similarities in the story, the child Mary will carry is by far the superior. As one commentator wrote, Jesus is no mere forerunner for the Lord, but he is the son of God himself. During the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel was given another assignment from the Lord to go to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. And when he meets Mary, the text says, look there in verse 28, he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And just like Zechariah, she's afraid. And the, Gabriel, and the angel Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He continues in verse 32. He will be great. 
Now stop there for just a moment. That is the same exact word that was used about his cousin John. Great. He will be great. But Jesus is great, and the text continues, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, we can't possibly imagine what all was going on in Mary's heart and mind in that moment, can we? She, knowing much more about the Old Testament scriptures than we do, having all of the prophecies about this uh, Messiah from King David's line going on in the back of her head, knowing that the son of David would be this Messiah. She has all of that going on, but she has this one question in verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? It doesn't appear to be disbelief, like Zechariah, because it wasn't responded to by the angel Gabriel in the same way, but it is rather confusion. Because, yes, Mary is engaged or betrothed, as the text says, but she is not married yet. She may be close, but she is not married. And so she doesn't understand how she could possibly be pregnant. Now, we know, students of the Bible, that there have been stories after story in the Old Testament that God has opened the womb of women and they're able to conceive, but not unmarried women, not virgin women. This is a new thing. The angel doesn't need to, but he explains and helps Mary with her confusion in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, you and I know what's going on. Most of us know exactly what has happened or what is going to happen, but let's be honest. When the angel Gabriel says that to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that doesn't explain a whole lot. It doesn't tell Mary exactly what's going to happen. That really shouldn't answer any of her questions about, hey, this is my current life situation. You're telling me that I'm going to be with child, in fact, a very special child, the most special child, and you're telling me this little bit of information. And Mary could have just stopped and said, hang on, I need a little bit more information. I'm going to need some more details to carry out this grand plan of God. But she doesn't. Mary says in verse 38, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, yet according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I can't help but to stop when I read a verse like that and pause at the quiet and humble faith that Mary exudes in this moment. Because think with me, here's a young woman engaged to be married that is now pregnant. She will bring an immense amount of shame upon her family in a culture that is shame and honor-based. She's going to not only bring shame upon her family, but she's going to bring shame upon her soon-to-be husband, the man that she's betrothed to, Joseph. Now, Elizabeth, married to Zechariah, has been living, in a sense, a life of reproach. She says that herself up until this point because of not being able to have children. 
But that's nothing compared to the reproach that is about to come on Mary because she's had a child or she will have a child outside of wedlock. No one is going to understand Mary when she says that she's had an angelic vision. They won't believe that she has the Messiah growing within her womb. This announcement from Gabriel means that her marriage is on the line and potentially even her life. And yet, she just accepts the will of God. I don't, I don't know about you, family, but I find it difficult to take God at his word when it costs me relatively nothing. And yet here, Mary knowingly is risking her life and shame and reproach upon her family, and she just accepts the word of God as it is. Brothers and sisters, we need not idolize, nor should we idolize Mary. We have no need, nor can we pray to her. But there is absolutely something that we can learn from her faith here. When the word of God comes to you, this is what we need to hear and receive as gospel people. When the word of God comes to you, submit to it. Submit to it. Christian, maybe that means for you that it is time to repent of some selfishness that you have been allowing to run rampant in your heart and life. And maybe that means that it is time today, as we've heard already from our brother Mark, about his opportunities to disciple other college students. Maybe for you today is that moment that you would say, Lord, I have been extremely selfish with my time, and today is the day that I go and seek out another member in this very family and begin to disciple them in the way of Jesus. I don't know what it is for you, but here's what I know. Loud and clear from the story of Mary, as she receives this information from the angel Mary, is that when the word of God comes to you, submit to it. Now, our stories begin to collide here, because in verse 39, Mary visits Elizabeth. Elizabeth had been in hiding for five months no one knows what is going on with her. Mary has no idea until Gabriel tells her in verse 36 that Elizabeth, who had been barren, was going to give birth to a son. And so Mary heads to see Elizabeth. And in verse 30, 41, we see that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped, leaped in her womb. And Luke records that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately she begins to explain to Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Here, Elizabeth begins to sing the first of five songs here in this, what theologians and scholars call the infancy narrative of Jesus. Elizabeth asks in verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She closes this section in verse 45 towards Mary. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And as we conclude this morning, I want to ask you three questions. The first, right in line with Elizabeth's statement. Will you take God at his word? I realize that that's an easy question to some degree. Will you take God at his word? Yes. The answer is yes for most people, especially those who consider themselves Christians, Christ followers. That means that we have submitted ourselves 
to God and his word. That means we are people of the book. But the question must be applied. Will I take God at his word? Like, will you believe him? As Mary ponders all of this, she's overwhelmed at what has and is taking place and begins to sing another song. And through that song, she communicates three overarching truths. I'm going to look at those really quickly. The first that she seems to imply is that God sees. Mary cannot get over the fact that God, almighty God, sovereign God, who has been promising specific things to his people for all times, can't believe that God has looked on her, verse 48, on her humble estate. And second, not only that God sees, but that God is strong, that the God who has looked upon her is mighty, verse 49, and having shown strength with his arm in verse 51, scattering the proud and bringing down the mighty from their thrones. And finally, she says that this God is the God who speaks. He's not silent. He hasn't forgotten about his people. 400 years, sure, it seemed like an incredibly long time. You haven't heard from the Lord, but this is the God, the God who has looked upon me, the God who is mighty, is the same God who speaks. He spoke to her fathers in verse 55, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, and his 400 years of silence was up. He hadn't forgotten. God always fulfills his word. Brothers and sisters, if God has said something, it will come to pass. If God has spoken to us clearly in his revealed word that has been once for all delivered to the saints, it certainly will come to pass. He hasn't forgotten about the covenant that he made with Abraham and his covenant children. He hasn't forgotten about the covenant that he made with the forefathers. It's easy to read the Bible. It's kind of easy to listen to a sermon. Anyone can do that. It's another thing to take God at his word and to receive it by faith and humbly submit to it. God had been communicating to his people for a really long time that he was going to send a Messiah, that through Abraham, he was going to bless the entire world. There were many that had likely given up hope that God was going to come through. And then after all the time of communicating through the prophets, God just stops speaking. 400 years of silence, and he begins again. Again, he hadn't forgotten his children. He hadn't forgotten his promises. God always fulfills his word. And dear Christians, that means that Jesus, who has now come as we know it, he has lived a perfect life. He died the death that you and I as sinners deserve to die on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day, he was resurrected. And so when the scriptures say that Jesus is going to come again, is he going to come again? You better believe it, because God always fulfills his word. The second question not only will take, will you take God at his word, believing that he will do what he says, but will you submit to it? We submit to God's word. If I'm honest, this is where I find myself most in the Christian life. I believe that God's word is absolutely true, but I don't always submit to it. I don't always do it. As I was leaving this morning, the kids were taking a bath. 
I didn't leave them in the bath. Their mother was there. <laughs> and I, I talked to them for just a moment. We had a rather rough evening before putting the kids down to bed. And so I just spoke with the children for just a second. Guys, I'm about to leave. Daddy's going to church. I'll see you in just a bit. But would you obey your mom as the Lord tells you? And here's, here's what my daughter began to say, because she just recently memorized this verse. She looked at me and she said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, I don't say that to you bragging about her having recognized that verse. I say that because I do the same thing all the time. Having received God's word, having known God's word, Having believed God's word, I know everything that he's communicated to me, and I can tell you what he says, but it is much more difficult to submit to it when it actually affects my life. Because moments later, I was going to leave, and then they, by God's grace, were going to have to put that into practice. Do you understand? That's where it becomes difficult for the Christian. I don't always want to do what God says. Zechariah was a faithful man of God, and yet when the word of God came to him, he was skeptical because he just couldn't see how this was going to work out in the divine plan of God for his life. His cynicism had got the best of him. Thankfully, if you are God's child, he will use any and every means possible to draw you back, right? And amen? For Zechariah, it was shutting his mouth. Essentially, you're not going to be able to speak because you received God's word and you didn't submit to it and you didn't believe it. So here's what's going to happen, Zechariah. For just a little while, you're just going to have to see this play out. You're just going to have to wait and see that God always fulfills his word. Perhaps for you, it's the, it's the loving correction from a friend. That's the way that God uses means in which to get you and to draw you back into right fellowship. It's a Christian friend, a brother or sister saying, brother, sister, I see what is going on in your life. I know that you believe God's word. Will you submit to it? This is why I love body life so much. We need the interaction in our life groups, in our DNA groups. We need the interaction from our brothers and sisters in the Sunday gathering so that we could speak to one another in loving correction, in kindness, in exhortation, and even rebuke saying, come back. Listen to God's word, submit to him. And finally, the question that we must ask ourselves is this. Do you trust in the God of the impossible? Do you trust in the God of the impossible? Do you trust that Jesus has been born of a virgin? We'll see that next week in the text. And that not only that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that he lived a perfect life, that he died a criminal's death on the cross, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected on the third day, that Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father as an advocate for you and I, that God took your dead heart if you're a Christian 
And he brought it to life so that you could be in right standing and right relationship with him and could join with him in life in the kingdom. Mike McKinley said this, salvation must come in a way that only God can accomplish so that we will know what God has done, that God has done it, and so that he might get all the glory. Will you believe that God can do what he says he will do? Luke has written an orderly account for sure. It's grounded in time and space. It actually happened. This is a historical record and account of the real life events of Jesus, his ministry, and we saw this morning his cousin John. It actually happened. Luke went to great lengths to show us this, and God has preserved it so that we might read of it today and that we might learn of him. But to believe it is to realize that God has done the impossible. So I don't say that. I don't ask that question, do you trust in the God of the impossible this morning, as a cliche question, something that all Christians just ask. Brother, do you believe that God can do the impossible? And then we find ourselves really not submitting to God's word. Therefore, we just walk away from that in everyday life. Do you believe that God has done the impossible? Each week at South Point, we take time to recognize that God has, in fact, done the impossible through Christ Jesus' death, his resurrection. We do that in a meal called communion. And it is here. It seems so disconnected at times from his birth. But in communion, we remember specifically his death, that Jesus who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You say, Chris, how is the death that we celebrate in communion connected to his life? And here's what I want you to see, how it all connects this morning. And it's this, his death, that we can't possibly understand its full impact without his birth. Because if he hadn't been conceived by God to the Virgin Mary, he would be born in the same way that our first father, Adam, would have been born. And as a consequence of Adam's sin, we now find ourselves being born in sin. And so if Jesus was born in that same line, he too would be a sinner. But God, in his divine redemptive plan, saw to it that he would overshadow Mary by the Holy Spirit and that she, a virgin, would conceive a little baby boy, God, in the flesh, coming to save sinful men and women like you and me. And that is how his death connects to his birth. And so this morning, here's what I want us as the people of God to remember, that Jesus, having been born a sinless life, lived a sinless life, and on the cross, he took on every single sin 
for every single person that would ever believe for all time, now and forever. And he bore it upon himself. He drank God's wrath. He drank it fully. And so when we partake in communion in just a moment, there are four stations around this room. I invite you to come as the children of God, recognizing what only God could do, that he has done the impossible.